Sorry, having a little bit of technical difficulty there. Please overlook that. Um, the message that I'm going to be bringing to you is going to be from 1 Samuel chapter 17. Um, and it's going to be the story of David and Goliath. And it's a very familiar passage, very familiar story. You've probably heard it preached a hundred different times in a hundred different ways. I myself have preached this message in a multitude of different ways. For example, I've talked about the stones and five stones meaning this and looking at some allegorical things going on with the story, David bringing the bread and, and all of these different allegorical things. But I realized something um, when I woke up from this nap, uh, having dreamed myself preaching this, I realized that I've kind of been, it's almost, and forgive me for this illustration, but it's almost as if I've been standing in a garden and I'll pick up a flower and get so preoccupied with this flower that I miss the beauty of the whole garden. And I know that's kind of a, a rough illustration, but what I'm trying to communicate is I've been in times past and I'll, I'll take an allegorical or spiritual meaning or a hidden meaning and I'll focus on it so hard that I'll miss the beauty of the story as a whole. And so what I want to do today, it's going to take a little bit of work. We're going to do a little bit of reading, read about 50 verses. But what I want to do is I want to look at this story as a whole. I want to look at the whole thing and I want to see what the main message is. Not what the pieces could mean and how they could fit, but I want to just look at the main push or the main emphasis of this story. So let's just start in 1 Samuel 17 verse 1. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes-Demim. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle right to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. Then a champion came up from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. The three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the second to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. The Philistines came forward morning and evening for forty days and took his stand. Then Jesse said to David, his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand. And look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. For Saul and they 
and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Allah fighting with the Philistines. So David arose early in the morning and left the flock with the keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. And then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath and Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words, and David heard him. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? The people answered him in accord with this word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, What have I done now? Was it not just a question? Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing, and the people answered the same thing as before. When the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or bear came and took a lamb from the flock. I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul tried to clothe David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, but he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. He took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag which he had, even in his pouch and his sling in his hand. And he approached the Philistine. The Philistine came on and approached David with the shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came near and true to meet David, 
that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his bag, hand into his bag, and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And he struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran over and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Sorry, that was a lot of reading. But I'm coming to realize as I grow and as I move forward and mature as a pastor that everything that I say doesn't have any power, but it's actually the Word of God. So the more Bible that I can give you, the more of the Word of God that I can get you into, the more transformation, the more change there will be. See, I might be as smart. I might not be smart. I don't know. I might be smart. I might be intelligent. I might be able to twist some good sermons together, some good message together and be entertaining. But in of myself, I have no transforming ability. But the Word of God has a power. It's the very breath of God. It was given by divine inspiration for doctrine, for reproof, for edification, for all those other things mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 3. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to present the Word of God and allow it to bring change and allow it to bring the power and the transformation. So the reason I wanted to read this story as a whole is because I didn't want to come and to try and craft some eloquent sermon. What I wanted to do is I wanted to just present the story and let the story speak for itself. So here you have an impossible situation. You have the army of Israel and they've been invaded by the Philistines. So they meet together and you've got the Philistines on this mountain and you've got the armies of Israel on this mountain and there's a valley in between them. And this giant Philistine, this monstrosity of a man, nine foot something and some odd inches tall, walks into this valley with armor so heavy that none of us could lift it. A sword, a spear, a shield, a javelin, and just this monstrosity of a warrior. And he calls out the armies of Israel every single day for 40 days, saying, just send one person and let's do battle. But what's more than that is he's not just calling out the armies of Israel and saying, I guarantee you that there's no one in your army that could beat me. But he's also calling his own Philistines out because he's speaking on their behalf saying, if you can beat me, then they're going to be your slaves. If you can beat me and kill me, they're going to be your slaves because none of them are better than I am either. Because think about this, logically. If there was someone in the Philistine army that was stronger than Goliath and could beat Goliath, then don't you think that they would be like, hey, you're not going to speak for me. I'll fight instead of you. So obviously, not only did he believe that he was the greatest soldier in the Philistine army, but he also believed that he was the greatest soldier in against the armies of Israel. And so what you essentially have is this impossible situation coming and taunting the Israelites Every day, day after day after day after day. And then the people who should have fought, you know, David's older brothers, uh, Eliab and Abinadab and Shema and Jonathan, who is a great soldier and a great warrior, and Saul, who we see glorified in the first chapters of 1 Samuel, was a head and shoulders above everybody else. So he should have fought. You've got all these great soldiers and great warriors physically that should have went out and fought against this giant. But they knew that physically it was an impossibility for them to win this battle. There was no way that they could conquer this enemy. And do you see this kind of, this kind of picture building? You've got a war and an impossible odds. 
The Israelites can't advance because they can't go through this giant who they can't kill. But they can't retreat because then they'll be surrendering more of their land to the Philistines. So, And then they would be slaves as opposed to Goliath's challenge anyway. So you've got a situation where they're essentially stuck exactly where they are. They can't go back. They can't go forward. and They're stuck. They can't answer the challenge. So it's an impossible situation. And then you have an unlikely deliverer in David. David wasn't the biggest. Um, remember when Samuel goes to anoint someone from Jesse's household to be king? He looks at David's older brothers and he's like, man, this dude is so impressive. This has to be the one the Lord has chosen. And he says that about all of David's brothers until he gets to David. And David wasn't even brought into the house because he wasn't considered worthy to be by Jesse to be brought in for consideration of the anointing. So David was out with the flocks and they had to actually go get him and bring him in for the Lord to choose him. And for Samuel to carry through that anointing. David wasn't big enough and strong enough to even carry Saul's armor. So David was an unlikely hero. And then what I love about this is David doesn't choose to use natural means. I mean, you're going out against this guy in armor with a sword, a shield, a javelin, and a spear. And David doesn't choose to deck out in Saul's armor because he can't, he can't wear it, he can't lift it. But when he takes it off, he doesn't say, hey, get me some armor that I can actually walk in, that I can actually wear. He just says, I'm going to go with what God has always delivered me with. And he gets a few stones out of the stream and he goes out to face this giant and overcome this impossible situation. And he doesn't waver in his faith. He calls Goliath out and he says exactly what's going to happen. He says, I'm going to defeat you. I'm going to kill you. And then I'm going to cut off your head. And each one of those things that David says happens. And it's all based upon this verse that the whole world will know that the God of Israel is the Lord in heaven. And that the armies of Israel will know that God doesn't deliver by sword or by shield or by spear. But um, what is it exactly he says? For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. So he's saying that, you know, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord, you know, to quote that prophecy. So you've got this situation that's impossible. No one can, they're stuck in a stalemate. And then you've got an unlikely deliverer. Now think about this and let's spiritualize it for just a moment. Not to kind of pinpoint, but to look at the overall push of the message. We are standing here before Christ comes. And we're standing here and our sin came and taunted us every single day. Our inability, our unworthiness... I know that you know exactly what I'm talking about when you want to be a certain way, but you just keep falling. You keep falling short. You keep failing. You realize that you're never going to be as good as you would like to be. You're never going to be smart enough. You're never going to be strong enough. You're never going to be good enough. You're just always going to fall short in some area of your life. And that's kind of like what's going on with the Israelites, isn't it? That they're not good enough. They're not strong enough. They're not smart enough. They can't overcome this situation. And so it requires a deliverer to come and to bring them out of this situation. And the same is true with us. You have Goliath who was sitting there yelling at the armies of Israelites and taunting them every single day. You know, I defy the ranks of Israel. You have Satan, the accuser, the adversary coming every single day and he's rubbing our sins and marching them across our face, taunting us with them, saying, you're not good enough. You're not pleasing to God. You can't do it. You can't accomplish it. You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. You're not smart enough. You're not able. And every single day we have that same taunt come, that same taunt come. And then all of a sudden you have Jesus Christ who comes and lives the perfect life. Remember David, he 
talks about how God had delivered him from the lion and the bear and his life was a preparation for the moment in which God would use him to overcome the giant. Well, the same is true with Jesus. When Jesus lived, he lived a perfect life, sinless perfection so that he could get to the garden of Gethsemane and take our sin upon himself and take the sin to the cross and nail it to the tree. So Jesus' life was a preparation for the moment when he would take sin, the champion of Satan, he would take sin head on and nail it to the cross and make a public spectacle of it. That's Colossians 2 uh, verses 14 and 15. It says that the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that Jesus triumphed over them in it and took them and nailed them to the cross, making that them null and void and making a public spectacle of the enemy. It actually says that if uh, in 1 Corinthians 2 8, it says that if Satan and the rulers of this age would have known what was going to happen, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. If they would have known, they would not have followed through with the crucifixion. If Satan had, would have known what the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ would have accomplished, he never would have allowed Jesus to go to that cross. He would have done everything he could to stand in the way of that. But he triumphantly marched Jesus to the cross thinking that he has killed and conquered the Son of God. But Jesus overcomes him publicly through the very means that he thought was going to conquer Jesus. Think about this. David doesn't carry a sword into the battle, but standing there without a sword tells Goliath that he's going to cut his head off. Goliath marches out into battle against David with a sword, not knowing that the very sword he was taking into battle against David was going to be the sword that removed his head and fulfilled the prophecy of David. Jesus allowed Satan to come against him with the cross. Satan did not know that the very cross that he was going to try to annihilate the Son of God with was going to be the very cross that was going to put an end to the kingdom of darkness and disarm the principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places and overcome them. So Jesus overcame Satan in the kingdom of darkness by the very weapon that Satan brought against Christ. Just like David overcame Goliath with the very weapon that Goliath brought to the battle against David. So you see that? I don't know if you guys have ever heard um, Matt Chandler, but he preaches on this and he, he always just says, you're not David and gets all passionate about it. But you know, I, I'm not trying to come from that perspective, but I'm trying to come from the perspective of I'm not David. Thinking about I'm not David. I know who I am. I'm Saul. I'm the one that's sitting back there that knows what I should do or knows what I could do, knows or knows what I can't do rather, knows that I'm in an impossible situation. I have, I'm, I'm the one that's shaking in my boots. I need a David. Have you ever thought it was interesting that in the Gospels, it always references uh, some of the people that are seeking healings for the blind men, for example. They always cry out to Jesus and they say, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on us. That's because Jesus is the messianic fulfillment of that prophecy and he is of the lineage of David. I need the son of David. I need my own personal David to come and to set me free from the impossible situation that sin put me in. I can't deliver myself from that situation. I can't overcome Satan. I can't... <laughs> you know, the first message that I ever preached... I not the first message, the second message that I ever preached, I'm sorry, was I preached a message on getting a word from God. 
And it was actually a pretty good message, if I do say so myself. I mean, you know, get a word from God to overcome the giant in your life. You know, if your giant's alcoholism, get a word from God and hold on to that word and overcome that giant. And if, you know, it's, you know, lust, then get a word from God and hold on to that and use that to overcome that giant. And be like David and go out in faith and power and overcome the giant. And I preach that very passionately and there's some truth to that and there's some truth to the allegorical messages that people preach about the number of stones and about David bringing the bread and all those things and there's nothing wrong with any of that but I told you that I don't want to look at just a specific flower. I want to look at the whole garden and to me the whole push of this message is about God using a specific individual to overcome an impossible situation and deliver all of Israel from the impossible situation, from the accuser, from the one that stands out as the adversary. And so I look at that and I see, I see Jesus just glorified here in the sense that Jesus came as an unlikely deliverer. No one thought that the Messiah was going to come as the suffering servant. No one thought that the Messiah was going to be born in the offshoot of a house, stable. No one thought that the Messiah was going to come from uh, Bethlehem and through Nazareth, Nazareth so that he would be called a Nazarene. No one thought that the Messiah was going to walk among us and not be some great zealot and overthrow Rome. No one expected Jesus to come in the form that he came. No one expected it to look like what it did. And just like no one expected it and some even got angry, no one expected David to deliver them from Goliath. He wasn't the biggest and the strongest. He wasn't a soldier. He was a young boy or young man who looked after sheep. Even his brother gets angry and calls him out and says, what, did you, what are you doing here? You let, where'd you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? No one expected the means that God would use for Israel's deliverance through Jesus. And no one expected the means that God would use for Israel's deliverance through David. But those are the means that God chose. And so to me, I see a whole realm of beauty here that the Word of God is just pushing forth that Jesus Christ as our deliverer brings that unexpected, unlikely deliverance and overcomes that situation for us. So we can chant all day long, be David, be David, be David. But I know in my heart that I'm Saul. I know in my heart that I'm the one that's sitting off on the back saying, I can't do it. I can't, I can't challenge this man. He'll destroy me. And not only will he destroy me and I'll lose my life, but everybody back here is going to be making fun of me. And the name of Saul will go down in history as, the one, as nothing more than the one that thought he could challenge this great soldier, Goliath. I, I know who I am. I know that I need a deliverer. I know that I need somebody to step up in my place as, the as my substitution because in all rights it should have been Saul that met Goliath. It should have been him. And that's why he wanted to put his armor, or at least that's the reason I believe he wanted to put his armor on David so that when David went out, if David won, everybody would think that it was Saul that won. But it was Saul's obligation to go. As the king, as the biggest and the strongest, head and shoulders above everybody else, he should have been the one that went and fought Goliath. But he didn't because he was scared and because he knew that he was unable. So David goes as his substitution and defeats Goliath. Just like Jesus came as our substitution to overcome the kingdom of darkness and to slay sin and defeat it so that we might be liberated from this impossible situation that we find ourselves in.
Think about this. After this situation, I didn't read down through, but it's something cool to just add. After this happened, David cuts Goliath's head off. And he carries Goliath's head back to Israel. Or back to Jerusalem, rather. He carries Goliath's head back to Jerusalem. And I don't know what he did with it for, I don't know if he like put it up on a stake and like held it for everybody to see. I don't know. But at some point, he had to bury it or get rid of it because that would have kind of got nasty like sitting on top of his dresser. So at some point in time, he had to like put it in the ground. And it's been said, and I, I believe, that when he put it in the ground, he, where he put it, he named it Goliath of Gath, and I, or it abbreviated Golgotha, which is translated the place of the skull. So I believe that the place of the skull, Golgotha, is this abbreviation of Goliath of Gath. And I believe that when they marched Christ up and put his cross in the ground and crucified the Lord of glory and his blood went down, I believe that he was shedding his blood and giving his life on the same place where the skull of Goliath, the giant, was buried. And I think it's so funny because there's all kinds of allegorical symbolism and messages that you could preach from that. But I think it's so funny just in the simplest way to communicate this that what once held Israel in bondage what once held Israel captive by fear of death and by fear of suffering and by fear of slavery, what once held them completely in dehabilitated, what once completely paralyzed them, was defeated by David and brought back and buried. And what eternally has held men and women dehabilitated or paralyzed sin that has from the beginning I said eternally a minute minute ago that was a, a misspeak on my part but what once from Adam's fall all the way up through to the coming of Jesus has held men in bondage through fear of death through inability to work and to fight contrary to the sin nature through just this overwhelming shadow of paralyzing guilt and wickedness. Romans 3 says that there was no one that sought God, that no one did good, not one. There was no one righteous. All of those type things held by this sickness and this oppression of sin. Jesus puts an end to that with the very weapon that Satan was trying to use to put an end to Jesus. And I think it's so funny that the two stories connect at their climax. David conquered Goliath, brought his head back as a trophy, buried it um, outside Jerusalem, outside the city gate. And then Jesus, a thousand years later, comes to conquer the real champion of the kingdom of darkness, to conquer the real Oppressor to conquer the real giant, as it were. And he does it in the same spot where David buried proof of his victory. And I just, do you see the beauty of the Word of God? 
And, and that's really even more so than, than communicating Christ conquering and victory over sin, even more so than talking about David and the, and the awesome story that we just read, even more so than all that, what I really want to communicate this morning is the beauty of the Word of God, the simplistic beauty. And, and I have been so guilty of staring at a flower or a piece it's like, I said earlier that it's like staring at a flower while you're standing in the Garden of Eden or any beautiful garden, and you're so preoccupied with the flower that you're missing everything else. And it's, it's like standing in like a, a mine, and there's diamonds and rubies and emeralds and gold and silver and, you know, all sorts of wonderful gemstones. And you pick up one, and you're focused on it, and you forget that there's everything else. And there's nothing wrong with looking at the one and studying it out and seeing how beautiful it is or anything like that. But sometimes I think it's good that we just take a step back and we just look at the big picture. That this whole book from beginning to end is Christ. It says in Hebrews, in the volume of the book, it is written to me to do thy will, O God. Um, Jesus talks about this in, in John when he says, you, you read the scriptures and search them, thinking that by them you have eternal life. But if you had believed them, you would uh, believe me. And then in the Emmaus walk uh, in the Gospel of Luke, I believe, um, when he's meeting, uh, meeting with them, it says that he expounds the scriptures starting at Moses and shows... Um, himself throughout the scriptures and then after they get back and the Holy Spirit falls on the apostles that they see Christ throughout the scripture. Uh, So there's so many references to the fact that this whole story is God's story. It's one big picture. It's one big garden. It's one big mine shaft of all these jewels and precious stones and flowers and beautiful things that we we need to really grasp the whole thing before we start picking and looking at the little things. So when we're looking at David, it's beautiful. It's beautiful to see, okay, there was five stones and five might be the number of grace. And if that was the number of grace, then David used grace to overcome the giant or that it's a stone and David slung the stone and stone represents the law. So he used the law to overcome the giant or he brought bread and Christ is the bread of life. So the minister that brings Christ can deliver the um, Israelites and deliver people from bondage. And, and, And there's all kinds of cool little stories and messages and sermons that we can get from it. But if we just look at the way it was laid out, if we just look at the Word of God, the simple way that it was put forth, that Israel was bound in an impossible situation, that they couldn't deliver themselves, they couldn't retreat, they couldn't advance, and they couldn't deliver themselves from their current position. They were stuck for 40 days, day after day after day after day after day. They were just stuck listening to this taunting, feeling cowardly, feeling miserable. People were probably calling each other out saying, you were supposed to be a brave warrior. Why don't you go fight him? It's like, why are you calling me out? Why don't you go fight him? And they were just stuck. And then an unlikely deliverer comes who wasn't the biggest, who wasn't the strongest, who wasn't the best looking, who wasn't supposed to be the one that delivered Israel according to any natural standards. But he does so, and he does so without armor. He does so without a sword. He does so without a spear or a javelin or shield or anything. He does so with his shepherd's equipment. 
And the giant was so offended that he said, am I a dead dog that you come against me with a stick? But David calls him out, uses his own weapon against him and delivers Israel. And it's the same beautiful story that we find ourselves in spiritually, that spiritual Israel was bound by the adversary of the, and the accuser of the brethren coming and taunting our sin, but are walking and parading our sin before us, taunting us with it every single day from Adam's fall in the garden all the way up through to Christ's victory at uh, Golgotha. And Christ, this unlikely deliverer, comes and through the weapon of the enemy, the cross, uh, a Roman tool of oppression that had probably killed thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of different people in excruciating ways. An instrument of torture and death and evil. And Satan chanting his little victory chant that he finally, he got the son of God condemned to such a fate, not knowing that that's the weapon that Christ was going to use to conquer him and then set forth as the token of our victory. That because of the cross, it's done, it's paid for. It was a public showing. And if Satan had known, he never would have let it happen. See, that's the beauty of the word of God. We don't have to dig, 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 dig to find the beauty. The beauty is right there plain for us to see if we'll just take a moment to look. And I'm not saying that any of the other messages are wrong. And I'm not saying I won't preach them again one day. I'm just saying that right now for today, I was overwhelmed by the simple beauty of the Word of God just on the surface. And I encourage you to just take a moment and look and be overwhelmed by the simple beauty of the Word of God. Thank you, guys.